0: I want to begin this morning with a quiz. Um, It's not a trick question. Uh, If you were here last week or you were just listening now, you already know the answer. Uh, The answer is not Jesus. Um, So here's the question. Here's the question. What was the central object in ancient Israel's sanctuary? the Ark of the Covenant. It's what we looked at last week and it's what we're looking at today. We're looking at much more than that, but the uh, Ark looked something uh, like this. Anybody uh, seen this representation of it? This is not uh, exact. This is not a scientific reproduction, but it did look uh, something uh, like this. Uh, Those of you that were here last week, notice uh, it's not on a cart here in uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark in 1981. The Ark was uh, a box. It was a container. And so it does make sense on one level to ask what was inside of this thing. And the scriptures tell us in a variety of places, including Hebrews 9. It says, behind the second veil, there was a tabernacle, which is called the Holy of Holies. And the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was, here's the three things that were inside of the Ark of the Covenant, a golden jar holding the manna, and Aaron's rod, which budded, and the tables of the covenant. We're not talking tables, tables here. We're talking about the two halves of the stone copies of the Ten Commandments. That is what is being described in the Word of God as the tables of the covenant. Now this is what's uh, inside of it. It looks something uh, like that. But I want to remind you, uh, those that were here last week, and tell you, those of you that weren't here last week, that these are not the most important details about the passage of 2 Samuel 6. The dimensions of the ark, the contents of the ark, are not what is of primary importance. I'm going to kind of set the stage. Today's uh, chapter 6 divides really into two parts. So I want to set the stage. Those of you that weren't here last week, those of you like me that have poor memories, kind of refresh what happened last week to set the stage for the second half of chapter 6, which we're about to get into. What we saw last week, what was really important, were not the dimensions of the ark or the contents of the ark or uh, those sorts of things, But we saw that David and the people of Israel in general, the people of ancient Israel at this time, that they deeply loved God. And David, their leader, their king, he wanted the central God-ordained component of their corporate worship, the ark, to be where it should be. And so this was a big deal to get this thing there. And we saw that David loved God deeply. And the people in general of ancient Israel loved God deeply. We also saw that the people of ancient Israel, including David, were not following the details, the instructions of God's word. So this is what's really important. We have a tendency, we all do, We talked about this in our men's group on Friday morning, of of sometimes paying excessive attention to details in Scripture that are not that important, they're lesser important, and missing what is really important. And what was really important last week is for the believer in 2023 in the foothills to recognize that just like the ancient believer in Israel, it is possible to love God with all of my heart, soul, mind, and strength, that my heart is in, that, that, that my heart, that Mike's heart is, is in a place, it's possible for my heart to be in a place where I am longing to love God with everything that I have, and then simultaneously to be blind to some aspect of God's word that I am disobeying. And that is what is important to take away from last week's passage and sets the stage for this week's passage. So for those of you that weren't here last week, we saw judgment come to Israel and to one individual in particular, Uzzah, who reached out to, to touch the ark. And it wasn't just him, but the whole community, really, and the leadership have, were, were disobeying the detailed instructions on how to carry this thing, and God judged them. So the We want the word of God to read us more than we want to read it. What I mean by that? Some of you ask me, what do you mean by that? Try to be really clear here. What I mean is God wants to change you and me. And he wants us to recognize that we are a lot like the ancient people of Israel, which is another way of saying is we are all very much like each other. And so what happened at the end of last week's passage is David recognized that the wrong person was handling the ark. They were transporting it the wrong way. We are not following the scriptures here. And so he hit the pause button, and he s- sent the ark into the house of Obed-Edom, who was actually of the right tribe, a Levite, and the right subunit of that tribe, a Kohathite. And the ark went there for about three months. So this long journey, trying to get the ark to Jerusalem, pause button was hit, three months transpire, and now we come to today's unit of scripture, which begins in verse 12. So hopefully you have your Bibles or your devices still open. Take a look at it with me, 2 Samuel 6 and verse 12. It says this, now David was told the Lord had blessed the household of Obed-Edom. This is the household where, where the ark has been sitting for three months as David repented, as it were, and then is the nation in, in large part repented, and, and the ark stayed there. In, in this dude's house, who is of the right tribe, the guy who was handling it last week was not of the right tribe, and, and, and continuing in the beginning of verse 12, and everything he has because of the ark. So God blessed his household, and everything he has because of the ark of God. Now, if we just read this first sentence in verse 12, we might wrongly conclude that the ark is like a a lucky charm, and this lucky charm came into his house, and, and his household was blessed. If all you had was verse 12, you might think that. But we don't have just verse 12. I just summarized what happened last week. And what happened to the guy who was close to the ark last week is that he was killed in judgment. So there are no such thing as, as lucky charms. There is, there is no such thing as, as hanging a rabbit's foot from your mirror. Anybody, anybody know that tradition? Anybody, anybody like in the Midwest where I grew up, Italian culture... Guys would have rabbit foots hanging from their rearview mirrors on the car. It's not too common in California, I don't think. I haven't seen one out here. But the idea was this thing's going to somehow protect you. Um, you're going to be lucky. That, that is, anything like that is a lie. And so the reason that Obed Edom is blessed is because. Like the people last week, he is loving God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength. But unlike the people last week, he is also following the details of God's word about how to deal with the ark. The things that God is most concerned about in your life, in my life, he writes about them in his word. And for ancient Israel, he was concerned about how they handle the ark. It represented him. It was central in their life of corporate worship, I said last week it's not too dissimilar, the ark from the Lord's Supper, which we are going to partake of after the sermon, after a, a song or two in, in a few minutes. It's a big deal. So, what we are seeing here is that he is blessed, not because he's near the box, not because it's a lucky charm, but because he loves God and is actually doing. What he is supposed to. Now, we don't get the details. If all you had was 2 Samuel, you have to kind of imply a lot of things. But if you flip over to the chronicler, the chronicler, 1 Chronicles 15, you don't have to flip. Look at it with me on the screen. It says this, describing this same period, the same event. This is David speaking at the beginning, King David. Because you did not carry it the first time, that's last week's passage. The Lord our God broke out against us because we did not seek him according to the rule, according to God's word about how to handle the ark. So the priests and the Levites consecrated themselves to bring up the ark of the Lord, the God of Israel. And the Levites carried the ark of God on their shoulders with the poles as Moses had commanded according to the word of the Lord. So they got it right this time. It's with the right person. It's being carried in the right way. And so there is blessing that is coming, not because of proximity to the ark, but because of people who love God and are following uh, his word. So I've framed today's passage, uh, today's outline rather, I've framed my main points today like I did last week as a prayer. So if, if some believer were to stop you on the street and ask you the dimensions or contents of the ark and you knew that, that might be of some value. I'm not sure what the value is going to be, but that might be of some value. What would be of much greater value is to see that God wants me to love him and God wants me to follow the scriptures. This is of immense value. This is really important. So God helped me to love Christ and to obey the details of his word. And those details of his word, we are all blind to some of them. That's one of the takeaways from last week's passage and from this week's passage. That we see that Uzzah and David and all of these people who love God were blind to certain things in God's word that they were not following. We looked at, a couple quotes last week from Daniel Kahneman. He says this He says, We can be blind to the obvious, and we are also blind to our blindness. The Israelites last week were blind to the obvious. It was written in Hebrew, which was their language, in black and white how to transport the ark. They were blind to the obvious. The reader of 2 Samuel sees that. It's obvious. But we need to go to the next level and say they were blind to their blindness. And then we need to go to the next level to recognize that I, Mike, you, insert your name, you also have blind spots in your life to how God wants you to live as it is written in his word. How did they become so blind? Uh, I'm not like that. Would be the wrong way to respond, but the fleshly way that you and I respond, why were they so blind to how to carry the ark? A reliable way to make people believe in falsehoods is frequent repetition. The ark had been carried on a cart for decades and decades, and no one had died. No one had had big troubles, so we're just going to keep doing it that way. Familiarity is not easily distinguished from truth. And when God's people are familiar in practice with doing something that is contrary to his word, it is very easy to follow along. These are the truths that are really important in 2 Samuel chapter 6. To love Christ and to obey scripture. God, would you help me? Would you help us to do both of these things? We read uh, Jesus... Speaks of this in John chapter 14. He says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. So, the right response to this passage is to have a heart that longs for knowing and obeying God's commandments, and then also having the humility to say, Well, even if you've read the whole Bible many times, that there are almost certainly passages that I am not living out, and I, and I can't see them. I can't show you what they are. I, I, I don't know what they are in your life. I don't know what they are in my life. That's what blindness is. So what does God do to open our eyes? Well, sometimes he does something extraordinary, like what he did last week through judgment. But That is very rare and not common. In my own experience, this is how it works out. This is how my eyes get opened up to blindness in my life, to passages that, of Scripture, God's detailed instruction on how the, the person, you, me, that he made, is supposed to live and we're not living. It usually happens through an extended and intimate relationship with someone who also loves Jesus but knows me. I don't know if you have a friend, a spouse that you share those things with that you don't share with other people very easily. We need other people who see our lives up close. They will likely be able to see your blind spots. And if they love you, they're not going to beat you over the head about your blindness, they're going to say, you know, we all have these, and they're going to pray for you, and they're going to, with, with love and with hope, help you and pray for you and open your eyes. So there's a lot of ways that it can happen, but I want to suggest that the blindness, that, that ancient Israel has had here, including King David, including Uzzah, that that blindness that we tend to have as well often goes away through intimate fellowship and sharing the details of our lives and other people can see our, our lives more clearly than we can. And then, and then they, they present the truth of God's word that we're, we're not living out. Yes. Okay. So to love Christ and obey scripture. All right. I've made it halfway through one verse. So let's pick up the pace. We're in the middle of verse 12. So the ark has had three months in the house of the Levite, the Kohathite, Obed-Edom, and there's blessing. So the middle of verse 12, so David went down and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David. This is, this is big. This is where it should be. It's finally to Jerusalem. So he's brought it there with rejoicing. Verse 13, when those who were carrying the ark of the Lord, and we know they were carrying it properly, had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. David, wearing a linen ephod, danced before the Lord with all his might. And I've got that circled. God wants you and me to love him, to dance, to sing, to praise him, to think great thoughts about him with all our might. This is what David is doing. He is celebrating. Verse 15, while he and the entire house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sound of trumpets, with everything that he has, he's dancing, he's screaming. With joy. This is a big event in Israel's history. This is a big event in, in having the people follow God's will and God's ways. And David is, as, has lost it in the very best way possible. The spirit has led him to dance. Like if you were a, a liberal, secular Darwinist watching this. This is a religious fanatic. This is a Jesus freak. If you were watching David, he would get labels thrown on him like that. Notice here, this is the narrator. We don't know who wrote 1st and 2nd Samuel, but he is an omniscient narrator. The Holy Spirit has inspired him and he is telling us what has happened. There's a sacrifice and there is worship with all of his might. If someone stops you on the street, it might be helpful that you know what the contents of the ark are, but it is much more important and much more helpful for you to know that God wants you to worship him with everything that you have. Now, how does that happen? Well, let me be really honest. Like, It doesn't generally happen weekly or daily, does it? Like, I, I, would, I would like to say that everyone came in today and, and like just blew the roof off of this place and because of their love for God and, and their hands were raised or they were dancing or if they're, you know, we, we, there, there's no set way to worship. If you're more, you know, uh, I'm gonna get in trouble here, like more frozen chosen instead of charismatic that your brain is just ready to blow the roof off as you're thinking about how glorify, how glorious God is. I'm not trying to say we need to be a loud church or have our hands raised, but I am saying that's pretty much what David is doing here. So how, what the forms are, aren't as important, but that we worship Jesus with all of our might. It doesn't tend to happen every Sunday or every day. God, help me to love Christ and obey Scripture. Help me to worship Christ with all of my might. You know, as I think about moments, I've been walking with Jesus, following him since a, since my spring break, my senior year in high school. And I could give you, and many of you could give all kinds of testimonies of intense expressions of worship where I was, I've got the word circled, with all my might, worshiping the Lord. Again, uh, the form of how it takes place is not that important, but with everything that we have that we're worshiping him. Uh, We need God's grace to help us to seek those moments. And I'm just being honest. I would like it to be every day. I'd like it to be every morning. I'd like it to be every Sunday. But if we're honest, probably what's coming to your mind, what's come to my mind in my preparing the sermon are different conferences and special Sundays where God's presence was just so strong. Um, Conferences I've been to Christian gatherings, concerts, especially large events and arenas where there seems to be an expectation for God to do something significant. These are the kinds of things that come to my mind. But interestingly, what also comes to my mind are how crazy and, and radical and free we, uh, people are when we are worshiping something other than Jesus. Have you been to uh, any, anybody go to a Kings playoff game this last year? Um, Yeah, they were so expensive. It was kind of weird. It was like cheaper to drive to the Bay Area and get tickets there than to go to the Kings game here. What I'm trying to say is people are going crazy. They wouldn't call it worship, but they're screaming at the top of their lungs. Their hands are raised. They're not concerned about what they look like. God has made us to worship every human. He's made every human to worship, and we're often confused about what we should praise or worship. I, 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 so what comes to my mind are all kinds of different sporting events. When My wife and I were first married. Uh, she was studying at UCLA, and we were living in an apartment just off of campus, not too far from campus, and their basketball team went to the national championship that year. And um, I'm going to kind of show, uh, I know I look really young, but I'm, I'm kind of old, so this was like in the 90s, this was in 95, and we had a TV, this is what makes me look old, like if someone came to your house today and you have a TV that's like 8 inches, <laughs> yeah, we don't have 8 inches, anybody have an 8 inch, 10 inch TV at home? Okay, a couple of you do, I'll, I'm not going to come to your house to watch the game, but um, we, we, we had someone gave us a color TV, and uh, maybe exact how how big twelve inches? It was small. I I don't nine or ten inches. All right, it's small, and we're huddled around that thing, and everyone in all the apartments around us are huddled around their uh, probably larger TVs. Maybe they're twenty four or thirty six inches. They were square. Remember square TVs that were deep. So for the young people here, that's going way back. So we had this small, deep TV, and, and doors are open on people's apartments, the windows are open, and you could just hear the cheering when, when they would score, and it's getting close, and it's getting close, and they won the national championship, and it's like all of West LA and Santa Monica and Westwood just like, erupted. Everybody's running outside their apartments, and just, just, everything's going on. It was just crazy. With all their might, we were worshiping praising that team with all of our might. The reader of 2 Samuel 6 sees what David is doing and responds by saying, God, would you do something in my heart so that I would worship you with all of my might and all of my heart? One one more illustration. This was just crazy. I'm talking about sports worship. One more illustration of sports worship. I don't know if any of you watched the Buccaneers-Seattle Seahawks game last year. It was in Munich, Germany. And at the end of halftime, they were playing John Denver Country Roads (laughs) in Germany. So everybody is German. They all have their phones up in the air with their lights on. Young people know what I'm talking about. And they are singing country roads at the top of their lungs. It is deafening the whole stadium. The game starts, the the announcer pulls the song off the PA system because the game's going to start, but the German crowd continues to sing John Denver. The game starts, the announcers have to tell people like me watching on their big TVs at home what's going on, The Germans are singing John Denver, and they pan through the audience, and you just see German accents singing, take me home to West Virginia. I mean, it's just crazy. Why am I telling you all this? Well, I think it's evidence that we're made to worship. We're made to worship. And John Denver is not our leader, our worship leader. And they weren't worshiping the Buccaneers or the Hawks. It was, they were joining, it shows the power of American media and music. I mean, can you imagine a bunch of Americans singing a German folk song at halftime of a Niners game? Like, that doesn't happen. Okay, let me get back to the text here. God wants us to worship Him with all of our might. And might we seek his face and ask him to help us to do that even today and next Sunday and even when we're alone driving the car, wherever we are. That is what up through verse 15 is about. Let's come back to the text. So verse 16. So David is worshiping with all of his might. He's dancing, shouts, trumpets. Look at the response here of his wife. Verse 16. As the ark of Yahweh was entering the city of David. Michal, daughter of Saul. And that phrase is used twice. I've got it circled in my Bible. It's used again in this chapter. It's a cue from the narrator that she isn't really functioning as his wife. She in her heart of hearts is a daughter of Saul. We don't have time to replay Saul, but he was essentially a bad king, a bad dude. And so the daughter of Saul who happens to be the wife of David, is watching from a window. And when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. She despised him in her heart. This is tragic. What we have is an unequally yoked marriage here. What we have is David's wife looking at him thinking this is unbecoming this is like a religious fanatic this is like a Jesus freak he should not be doing this what is she concerned with she is concerned with him being kingly she's concerned with the elite ancient Near Eastern culture of kings and how their families live. And her dad lived that way. He wouldn't be found without his robe. It was so tied to his identity, to be elite, to be wealthy, to be powerful, to be the king. But David's identity was not tied to his robe of elitism or power. David's identity was in his covenant-keeping God who he loved so he could throw off the robe and dance what looked like a crazy man but is someone who's simply worshiping Yahweh with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength. So we have a picture here of a tragic marriage, of a marriage of two people who are not on the same page Spiritually. A little bit more history for those of you like me that have poor memories or those of you who haven't been here for months and months, this lady has a complicated marital history. Some of you remember where I'm going right now. In those days, a king and men in general had uh, authority and power that they abused much more than today. Men still do this today, but it was much more commonplace. And so her father stole her, kidnapped her from her husband, and gave her to another man. That's a, difficult, that's a difficult season. Imagine that happening to you. Your father is an enemy of your husband. He takes you from your husband and gives you to another man as his wife. That's what happened. David demanded her back eventually. And so Ishbosheth, this is if we go back in time to 2 Samuel 3, where the kingdom was divided. It wasn't unified under one king, David, but there was Ishbosheth and David. And so Ishbosheth gave orders and had her, uh, Mekal, taken away from her husband, Paltiel. That's the guy that she was married to after she was essentially kidnapped. Uh, Son of Laish. Her husband, Paltiel, however, went with her, weeping behind her, all the way to Bahurim, which was like 20 or 30 miles. So I'm thinking these two did connect quite well. She and her previous husband, her temporary husband, he's weeping and following her. Don't take her from me. But David asked for her back. He was her wife. So Abner. You might remember the story. He was the power player. He was really functioning like the king, even though Ishbosheth was the king. So Ithbana said to him, Go back home. So he we went back inside. And so she's eventually delivered to David, becomes his wife. And we see here that her heart at this point is not with David, her heart is not with the Lord. And she is disappointed in the way that David is behaving. Let's come back to our text here in verse 17. Uh, I'm, I, I brought that up so that we know th- th- this woman has had an extremely difficult life and some of the difficulties she faced, she, she could not do anything about them. She could do something about this, of course, what we're reading here, but I just wanted you to know her background. All right, where are we? We're back at verse 17. So they brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it And David sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings before the Lord. After he had finished sacrificing the burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord Almighty. Then he gave a loaf of bread and a cake of dates and a cake of raisins to each person in the whole crowd of Israelites, both men and women. This is a party. This is a feast. This is a celebration. And all the people went to their homes. This is the narrator telling us things are good in the land. This is awesome. The ark is where it should be. We're handling it properly. we got the right people handling it. Verse 20, when David returned home to bless his household, Michal, daughter of Saul, came out to meet him and said, How the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, disrobing in the sight of the slave girls of his servants. So that's an important phrase. She is a cultural elitist. And she is describing the people in ancient Israel who would be at the very lowest rung of the social economic ladder. And, he's say, and she is saying that you have embarrassed yourself by what you were wearing in front of the slave girls of your servants. So not just the servants, these are the slave girls of your servants just as any vulgar fellow would. This is behavior that is unbecoming of a king. So what's going on here? God help me to never make decorum an idol. So what is decorum? Uh, we need a definition of decorum. I just so happen to have one. Decorum: propriety and good taste in conduct or appearance. This woman is excessively attached to being in the upper strata of society and culture and power and wealth. And she doesn't want her husband acting this way. As Californians, this is not a common thing that we struggle with, right? (laughs) Decorum. Um, Is anybody going to have trouble if they go out to lunch at a restaurant today not wearing a coat and tie as you go to that restaurant? Say no. Are you guys awake? So we're we're not. If we were in Washington, D.C., or we were in Manhattan, there are certain places that you would go for lunch that you would need a coat and tie on today. You would need decorum. Now, the way that God wants us to read a passage like this is to say, even though decorum isn't what I'm excessively attached to in the place of Jesus, that was her place. What is it that I'm excessively attached to in the place of Jesus? God helped me to never make, I really should just have a blank there, to never make my children, my grandchildren, my house, my car, my mountain bike, my... My idea, my even idea of being out mountain biking and enjoying, allow me not to excessively be attached to that and put that in the place of Jesus. Decorum is a fine thing. It's a fine thing to have to wear a suit to go to a restaurant. That's fine. That's not immoral. The problem is being excessively attached to that in the place of God, who her husband is worshiping. That is tragic. That is tragic, to never make decorum or whatever it is, an idol. Idols are things that we are excessively attached to in the place of Jesus. And if you're not, this is really important. What the contents of the ark are are a lot less important. But if you don't understand that your heart and your mind is an idol factory, that's what we are in the flesh. That's what we are by nature. It is very important. What, you could ask yourself, what do I freak out over? I'm talking about a negative freak out. What follows that? That's your idol. What do you freak out over? I've shared this with a couple of people I meet closely with, and now I'm sharing with you all. I freak out when I can't fix the sprinklers right. I freak out. Don't amen that. I mean, my neighbors don't want to be near when I'm working on the sprinklers. So this isn't about sprinklers. This is about my heart. This is about me being very far from Jesus and making my performance, my ability to fix sprinklers, which is really weak, is not what I want it to be. And so I'm angry, and I lose self-control. So my idol there is performance and pride, self-performance and pride. What do you freak out over? She's freaking out over the way her husband is dressing and acting in front of the low-class people. So we get to see what her idol is. So the careful reader of the scripture who loves Jesus here says, what is my idol? They're not focused on what's in the ark or what color it is or how big it is. God help me to never make blank an idol. Anything we love or serve more than God becomes an idol It saps our strength. Idols of career or money or relationships, they never satisfy. I mean, it was a cool moment to watch German people uh, singing John Denver. I'm not saying John Denver was their idol, but I'm just saying that doesn't satisfy. It is God alone who is going to satisfy your deepest longings. And he made you to worship him. And the greatest career, the most money, the coolest house, the coolest mountain bike, they are not going to satisfy your soul in the long run because you are designed and built to worship God, not these other things. Final couple verses here. Verse 21 is where we are. So we see the divided marriage here of David and Michal. And look at David's response. David said to Michal, "It was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father or anyone from His house, when He appointed me ruler over the Lord's people, Israel. I will celebrate before the Lord. I will become even more undignified than this, and I will be humiliated in my own eyes." So I'm reading this in the way that I read this. I read this as a fleshly statement. David has been worshiping the Lord genuinely, but he is now angry at his wife. And he is saying to his wife, you didn't like how I dressed then? I'm going to dress even worse the next time I dance and worship the Lord Yahweh. But by these slave girls you spoke of, I will be held in honor. And then the chapter concludes, Michal, daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. So I've said this many times in the ancient world. God's blessing was seen in crops, the production of crops, and the production of kids and children. So this was the hardest thing, not that it's not hard today, but it, is, it was the hardest thing, much more pronounced in the ancient world, for a woman to not have children. And the way I understand this, because of what David has just said, the way I understand verse 23 is David has moved on to his other wives. David, against Scripture, has many wives. And he is no longer going to be with Michal. He's going to be with the others. And she has no children. We have a man who loves God very much, a man after God's own heart, who is a sinner here and who responds to his wife in the wrong way. So the fourth and final prayer and point here is, uh, God help me to return evil with good. You could see this conversation going in many different ways. David's response to his wife. He could have responded like this. He could have responded by I see that you are not seeing this the way that I'm seeing it. My dancing, my disrobing of the royal robes, of not looking like a king. I see you're not seeing this the way I'm seeing it. I'm going to pray for you, and I'm going to, I'm going to, go, to, I'm going to go to Camp David, or I'm going to go someplace far away from you, and I'm going to come back, and I'm going to pray for you while I'm gone. You could see David responding with gentleness and kindness and love to his wife, but he didn't. And so the application for the spirit-filled Christian who lives in the foothills in 2023 is that when our spouses speak to us in a way that they shouldn't, that we don't join in with them. That's what David did. David was in a great place. He was in the center of God's will. His wife was not. And instead of overcoming her evil, it overcame him. Romans 12, 21. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. It is incredibly difficult to do. Um, I always think of Martin Luther King Jr. and his words here. When he talked about who the strong man was. There are two men in his context and situation. It's a black man and a white man. And they're about to fight. Who is the stronger? The stronger one is the one who makes peace. The stronger one is the one who overcomes evil with good. The stronger one is not the one who has bigger muscles or a louder voice but one who is yielded to the Spirit of God. And David has been, most of all of this chapter, yielded to the Spirit of God, but he has departed here. May God help us to not follow in his steps, in our marriages, and in our relationships. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, your word um, is very clear. It was very clear to know how to handle the Ark of the Covenant until it's not. And so, Lord, we acknowledge that there are places of passages in your Word that are very clear that individuals here this morning are not living out, that are not obeying. We are blind. Open our hearts to blindness. Open our eyes to the idols that are behind those occasions when we freak out. And finally, God, we ask that you would help us when our spouse or our children or our friend or our neighbor is angry at us and sending evil our way, that you would, by your grace, give us self-control and help us to return good. We ask this in Jesus' name.